there was a distinguished professor from Duke University who was asked, what brings you fear? Is there something you're afraid of? And he answered, he answered immediately, of being found out. Of being found out. He answered in a way that I suspect many of us would. This professor was essentially saying, what you see before you is someone with many degrees, somebody who's learned, who's, been, who's written a number of books, who performs in class on a weekly basis and, and, and has this reputation all over the campus, but essentially there are parts of me, there are weaknesses within me, there are places where I've failed greatly that I hope I will never be found out. His greatest fear was of being found out. I suspect we understand that. Preachers especially know this is true. We may work very hard to present a good image, to, to be a, a glittering image, as the novelist Susan Howitt says, to be one who keeps everything perfect and in order, but in, in reality, every one of us, whether we're talking about Paul and, and David and Nicole and me or any of us in the pews today, are worried that somehow that, that part of us, that place in our souls where, where we know we're, we're less than perfect, where we're far short of who we're called to be, we're afraid that somehow that might be exposed. The good news this morning, though, is that there is power in weakness, that God's grace is sufficient. When Paul quotes Jesus here, he wants us to understand that, that the single thing we can count on is the fact that God wants to go to the darkest places within us and bring light. God wants to turn our night into day. It's that very place, that one place where you never want to be seen, where God says, no, there. There I will do my best work within you. So the, the, then the great temptation, maybe the greatest temptation we face is to try to cover those things up constantly, to hide, to, to hide behind the list of accomplishments and successes and, and gains and the things we've done and say, there you go, this is, this is who I really am, to pretend as though somehow that's what's, what's most important. That's what was going on in the church in Corinth. There were these spiritual leaders in the congregation, some of them pastors, some of them uh, perhaps deacons and elders, who were simply saying, oh, let me tell you about my spiritual experience. Yeah, oh, what, you're, that's a nice one. Let me tell you about mine. And it would go back and forth like this, and they all, they all would, would boast about these various experiences they'd had or their understanding of Scripture or whatever it might be. And Paul, even in the section just before uh, the piece that Nicole read a moment ago, Paul says, oh, I, I had an experience like that too. I felt like 14 years ago I was transported into the third heaven and, and I just was surrounded by this white light and it was amazing and beautiful, but... And then he quotes Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you, for there is great power in weakness. Paul wants them to see that the promise is when we let ourselves receive the promise of God's love, the goodness of God's mercy, our lives then can be transformed. It's in that moment when we finally let go of the false pretense that we can move forward in faith. Uh, think about this. We pray about it every week, don't we? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This grace becomes real when we are able to not only be to receive forgiveness, but to practice it with others. The grace that Paul is writing about is based on unconditional love, but it is, a, it is a love that is very difficult for many of us to, to grasp and, and live within. And in fact, the, this, this inability to live within that love causes us to reach out toward addiction. Because when we're unable to live in love, we find ourselves living instead in anxiety, in fear, 
and worry, caught up in, in almost in, in, a, in a sadness, in a, a continual sadness that seems to envelop our lives. And oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes this can lead to addictions of all types. Sex, money, power, drugs, alcohol, you know the list. Maybe you can add a few more that might be on there. We, tur we turn to these addictions in order to cover our fear, in order to hide it, to push it aside, to help us feel as though that we'll, we'll never have to really face it. In the churches I attended as a child, we were told that fear could lead you to God. In fact, I have a good friend that I went to seminary with. He, he's, he went in a little different direction than I did. He went into a more fundamentalist type church. He's a good preacher. He's talented, reads, reads a lot of good folks, but he still understands that it's fear that leads us to God. He said to me once in a conversation a couple of years ago, we need a good theology of hell so that we can be brought closer to God. Gently I said, no. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. I remember the words of, of John the Apostle who wrote to the church 2,000 years ago, perfect love casts out fear. Do you hear the beauty in that? Fear is almost like it's the opposite of love. What, what, what John wanted us to understand, what Jesus, for goodness sakes, wanted us to grasp and understand fully and completely is that when we can let go of fear, that makes room for the love that God has already given to us. Little, little Avery this morning, who is, who is wonderful and sweet and perfect, the moment his life began, God already loved him, already saw him as the apple of God's eye. We baptized a little girl this morning named Riley at the North Campus. The same story was true of her, of Avery, and of every single one of us in this sanctuary today. You right now already have been loved by God. You right now already are loved by God and will be loved by God in the future regardless of what you do or say or don't do or, or don't say. This is the path that God invites us to follow. But as I said, so often fear blocks our vision. Fear keeps grace away from us. There's a man named Bill Wilson who was afraid. He was painfully shy. As an adult, he really didn't feel like he fit in very well. He had a hard time in social settings. He couldn't carry on conversations at parties. And, and he just was always, always afraid of, of just being himself, of relaxing. He never could until he went to a party and he had his first drink. And he relaxed. He had a second and a third. And pretty soon he became the life of the party. And, and he, he discovered that if he drank a little bit, he could just kind of lighten up and he could then drink a lot and he'd become even funnier and lighter. And then if he drank a whole lot, well, 17 years later, he was on the verge of being committed for chronic alcoholism when he sat down in his room and he said out loud to God, I give up. I, I just give up. God, take me as I am. In his book, he says he felt as though the, the room was filled with this bright but warm and comforting light. And for the first time in his life, he felt like he was accepted, like he was good enough, despite all the failures, the weaknesses, and the problems. You might recognize this story and Bill Wilson's name. He's the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was in the moment of giving up that he finally was able to receive God's love and forgiveness. I, I believe, frankly, that every addiction begins as the fear of, of not belonging, of, of not finding our place. In fact, it's Wilson himself who said that, that most of the, the, the alcoholics who had an understanding of, of the harsh, judgmental, fierce, and mean, angry God had the toughest time letting go of their addiction, receiving the forgiveness. It's that fear that blocks that view. 
It's that fear that keeps us from the grace of God. But as, as Paul quoted Jesus this morning, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made great in weakness. Do we receive the grace of God when we finally achieve the right way of thinking? We come up with a moral list that is proper and understood in the right order? When we believe the right things or think the right things? Is that when we get the grace of God? No. Do we get the grace of God when we marry the right person or produce perfect children or do really well at our, our school or in business or at church or wherever it is? Is that when we get the grace of God? No. Do we finally get the grace of God when we prove that we're worthy of it and we never do anything wrong ever? No, 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 and no. Grace comes because it's already there. It's already been given. It's already been spoken. We are able to live within the love and grace of God because God has already chosen you and me to be God's children. Several years ago, Julie and I were leading a family camp at the YMCA of the Rockies in Estes Park. If some of you have been to Estes Park, raise your hand if you've been, some of you have been out there. Absolutely beautiful space. Our, the church we served in Kansas City every year uh, drives across Kansas, about 100 or so folks, drives across the state of Kansas out to Estes Park. And yes, by the way, in case you're curious, Kansas is as flat as a pancake, just so you know. All these folks would drive out every year, and, and one year it was our, our turn to lead it. Well, because we rent a big lodge at the YMCA of the Rockies there, uh, we have to bring our own staff, our own volunteer staff. And so we had a couple of folks who volunteered to be cooks. Julie was in charge of the evening program. She led all these different things. We had square dancing one night and a big, huge volleyball game one night. I, I did the little Vesper service every evening. And during the day, people would hike or would enjoy some of the things right there at the, at the campground itself. It be a beautiful experience. But one night, our cooks came out. Uh, as, as dessert was about to be served, and they said to Julie in, in a quiet voice, um, the peach cobbler is dead. <clears throat> the, the dough didn't rise. The peach cobbler stuff is oozing out over the side of the pan. It's just, we don't, there's just going to be no dessert. And by the way, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but peach cobbler is God's favorite dessert. It really is. <laughs> you can look that up later in the Bible. Look up Hesitations 13, and you'll find it there somewhere. Some people right now are saying, hesitations? Is there a hesitation? Yeah. Look that, looked that up later. Anyway, Julie said, well, let me see what I can do. She went into the kitchen with the cooks. She pulled all the cobblers out of all the ovens. You see, the problem was we were up at about 8,000, 9,000 feet, and if you don't adjust the temperature just right for the elevation, well, then it doesn't work. And so she pulled all these, these cobblers out, sure enough, they were dead, flat, oozing out over the side. It would just looked terrible. But she got a little bit of flour, and she added some flour to each one. She got a little bit of butter, and she added butter to all those pans of, of cobbler. Then she added some, uh, some brown sugar to, to them and put them back in for about 10 minutes and then the cooks came out. They pulled out the cobblers. They came out and they announced to, the, to everybody who was waiting for dessert, tonight on the menu, it's resurrection pie. <laughs> you see, they understood theologically what had happened. Those peaches were dead. They were laying on the bottom of the pan. They did nothing to help themselves rise. But Julie came along with a little bit of the grace of butter. Yeah, the grace of butter and the love of brown sugar. And the next thing you know, We've got dessert. And it wasn't just peach cobbler. It truly was a sign of what God wants to do in your life and in mine. The great scholar Joseph Campbell says that Jesus' death on the cross was not as ransom paid or as penalty applied, but an act of atonement. Now listen to this. An act of atonement at one meant. It was Jesus becoming one with us in our suffering in our dying, in our living, that caused people to look at him and say, he is like the Son of God. 
It was a way for us to become one with God. For a God who entered into our, our joys, our pain, our sorrow, our heavens, and even our hells. This cross before you in this sanctuary is a sign of that one who came, came to give his life and his love for the world. Christ, Christ came not to save, save us from hell or some other mythological nonsense, but to invite us today to the life of love and the love that God wants to give not only to, to us, but to the entire world. Why, why is it? Why is it we're so afraid of this message in the church? Why, why is it we, we, we seem to hold back on this, on this way of preaching and speaking and being and living and, and behaving in the world? Why, why are we so afraid about it? Why, why does fear seem to dominate us when it comes to putting into practice into our faith? And I'm talking to myself as much as anyone else. Uh, Philip Yancey has a story about a time a friend of his wife's went to church. She walked in with her teenage daughter, and the pastor's wife, who had never really spoken to her, walked up to the woman and said, I hear you're getting a divorce. I can't believe you're getting a divorce. If you really practiced the love of God in your marriage, you wouldn't be getting a divorce. The woman and her daughter, as you can imagine, turned and left the building. The woman sat in her car and sobbed. Later, she said to Yancey's wife, her friend, you know, if she just walked up to me and wrapped her arms around me and held me tight and said, I love you and I'm here for you, I'd still be in that church. I'd still be there. Why are we so afraid? Do do you don't know who, who Jesus came to be with? It was the least, the last, the lost, the little, and, and the dead. The ones who were caught up the most in failure that Jesus spoke the kindest words to. Why, why, do, we, why do we allow, and I'm not just talking about fundamentalist churches, I'm, trust me, progressive congregations like ours can be just as mean and just as, as, as uh, upsetting when it comes to, and judge, judgmental when it comes to these kinds of things. Why do we get caught up in this kind of stuff and fail to follow in the spirit of Jesus? Do you know that there is nowhere in Scripture Nowhere in Scripture, in the New Testament, where Jesus said, calls someone else a sinner. Now, he's really hard on the super spiritual and the super righteous. He will challenge the Pharisees and other people who think they've got it all put together. He'll challenge them and, and call them out. But nowhere does Jesus call anyone a sinner, not one time. I said this in a sermon about five years ago, and this sweet older man in my church came up to me one Sunday later. And he said, I didn't believe that was true, but I read the entire New Testament twice this week. It turns out it's true. Turns out it's true because Jesus didn't come to condemn. Jesus came to save and to invite us to a new life. Do you remember what the, the, the thief on the cross next to Jesus said on the day of the crucifixion? Remember me. That's all he said. And Jesus promises you will be in paradise. When are we going to get the ecclesiastical guts that it takes to let this love, let this grace, this way of living and being in the world control and dominate and direct the way we live our lives? When are we going to allow Jesus' love and grace to give us the courage to let this word be for us, the reality of how we live? What did Paul quote? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made great in weakness. This is the word 
It's truly, this, it is, it's this simple. It's, this is the message that Jesus spent his entire ministry sharing. This is the, 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 the calling that the church has been given for 2,000 years now to let the world know that, that forgiveness is real, to receive it, to give it, and let it guide us in all that we do. There was a woman named Hilda. She was in distress. Her son, 18 years old, had tried to kill himself four times. He was into drugs heavily, a number of other serious problems. He declared to her, Mom, I, I don't believe in God. And if there is a God, I would turn my back on him in a heartbeat. I don't want anything to do with that God. Hilda went to see her minister and she said to her, her pastor, I, I'm so worried about my boy. I'm so worried that if, that if his life does end, that he'll stand before the judgment seat of God. And I, I, just, can't, I just can't think about that. And the, the pastor wanted to say to her, well, because this is the way he'd been trained. This is the way he brought up. This is the teaching he'd been given in seminary in the school that he attended. He wanted to say, well, you know, that's why the hell is there. It's a punishment. But instead of saying that, he said, well, what is it you see when your boy stands before God? She said, oh, I, he's, he's lived a terrible life. He's done all these terrible things and, and he's turned his back on God. I just know that God will tell him and he's going to be condemned forever. And the pastor was wise. He felt like something just snapped inside his mind. He, he began to wonder what, what kind of a theology would, would suggest that's, that's true. What kind of a church would proclaim that? And so instead of saying anything to her, he instead asked her. He asked, I want you to close your eyes. Will you close them? She did. I want you to imagine that you've gone to heaven. You're now standing before the very judgment seat of God. God is there on that seat. And you turn around and I want you to see that your boy has arrived right behind you. What do you want to do right now? What do you see when you see your boy? She said, what do I see? He's so lonely. He's so frightened. He's so scared. He's so overwhelmed. What do you want to do? I want to go over to my boy and I want to wrap my arms around him and kiss him on the cheek and cry with him and let him know that I love him and that I will love him now and forevermore until, until the end of all time. I want to go to my boy so bad. The priest let that moment set, set in. And then he said, now turn and look at God. What is God doing? And with the tears streaming down her face, she said, God has stood up off that judgment seat. God has opened up God's arms and God is saying to my boy and to me, I love you. I love you. I love you. What did Paul write? What did Paul share with the church in Corinth? The words of Jesus Christ. My grace is sufficient and in your weakness, my power shall be made great. When we empty ourselves and give ourselves over to the grace, the love, and the forgiveness of God, the very greatness of God will make itself manifest within us. Amen.